Well, let's, uh, let's just commit our way to the Lord, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you're good to us. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us your spirit so that we could understand your word. You give us your spirit to empower us to change, to be more like Christ. We praise you. We thank you. Give us insight in your word, I pray, this afternoon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Come on in. Well, my name is Ed Fedor. I'm associate pastor at Cornerstone Community Church, the other Cornerstone, the one on the east side. Have you anybody been to the east side, Cornerstone, where where we are? Okay. And um, if you want to take a note, you are in page 59 in your booklet, if you wanted to read there, follow along. the opportunity to use the Word of God to counsel people, to help them with their problems and the things that they face in their life is such a huge blessing, isn't it? How many of you guys have had an opportunity to to counsel? You've actually sit across the table and and counsel people? Yes? Some? Yes? Many of you? Uh, It's a really, really high calling to be able to use the Word of God, to pick up the Word, to be able to probe into somebody's life to have that opportunity to, to connect heart to heart, to be able to apply the truth of Scripture on big things, little things, and the power of the Spirit. But sometimes counseling can be frustrating. It can be a little discouraging at times. Does anybody know what I mean? Have you ever been a little bit discouraged in counseling? What can discourage you in counseling? Right on the nose. Um, from a human point of view, what I think is one of the most discouraging aspects of biblical counseling is working with somebody for a period of time and not seeing any substantial progress. That can be frustrating. Uh, that may not happen to you, but it happens to me sometimes. So I have a, uh, I'll just give you an, an example. I have a, a guy I was counseling, I'll name him Bill. It's not his real name to protect the innocent. It's not innocent. He's a sinner. We're all sinners. (laughs) So Bill had a number of things going on in his life for a long time. For for when he was growing up, he had a lot of issues, health issues. He actually had to be, um, uh, he, he went away to this residential treatment place for like two years. He was living there. He had some... Oh, Bill uh, Parsons you're talking about? No, <laughs> no, not him. Um, he had some occasion where uh, just he just felt like the, the, the staff there abused him verbally and belittled him, and, and it was he had a really tough time of it. He, he finally came out of that, started living his life. He found that he was a little awkward kind of a guy, and um, he, did, he wasn't taken very seriously a lot. He was ridiculed. And he started getting really angry. He started to become an angry person. And then he started transitioning in his anger over to um, what he might do to them if he, were, if he had the opportunity. So he started in his anger um, imagining all kinds of terrible things he would do to that person with weapons and all kinds of things. And this habit has persisted over years. He's now been a Christian for 25 years maybe. He still struggles with this. This idea of assassinating somebody in his mind because of what they're doing to them, what they're doing to him, how he perceives it and then mulls on it, stews on it. You know what I'm saying? He can get really angry like that. So finally, um, he wanted to get serious about this. So we were talking, and he, I got out my investigator hat. I was probing into what was going on in, in his life, got the story. Uh, we narrowed down the main things, you know, what was going on. Um, some obvious scriptures came to mind, which I'm sure a lot of them went into your head too. 
This guy has been a Christian. He's been going to a solid Bible-believing church for a long time. A lot of the same scriptures he knows as well. So we start ministering the word together, opening up the truth of scripture, good dialogue, good openness, good honesty, conviction of the spirit. Didn't disagree with a word. But no real progress. Over time, it just seemed like he's really stuck taking every thought captive. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know, none of this is, you know, if you say you hate your brother, you've You've murdered him in your heart, you know, says Jesus. Yes, 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 I agree. Memorize the verses. He could spout them back to me. No real progress. Why? Why does that happen? Well, there could be a number of reasons for that in general. You think about why this might happen. Of commitment. Part to the process. It's fear, lack of understanding. But apart from those things, I think one big reason I found, and it was in this case too, he just doesn't understand who he is in Christ. He either doesn't know or he's forgotten his identity as a born-again, spirit-indwelt, new creation of God. He doesn't really believe than he was before his conversion. He doesn't understand that sin does not have the same power over him like it did before his conversion. He doesn't believe it is powerful enough to change him. So I think a key element in making progress is number one, understand who you are in Christ. Number two, understand the resources you have in Christ. And then number three, remind yourself of it often. It means preach the gospel to yourself. Way too many Christians think that after we trust Christ for our salvation and we're born again, we put the gospel aside and get on with the Christian life as though the gospel was our ticket to heaven and the rest of our Christian experience is completely unconnected to the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. Born again, believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be constantly reminded of the gospel that not only saves your soul, but gives you a new identity in Christ. It empowers your growth in Christ. It clarifies your purpose in life, and it stabilizes your soul. You are a new you in Christ. Your counselee is not the same person he was before his conversion. He is not the same person. You have a new power in God's grace to live a life that honors and pleases and glorifies our Savior. So I would say the reason Christians live defeated lives is because they have forgotten who they are in Christ. Now, if you brought your Bible, turn to 2 Peter 1. just want to touch on this briefly. <clears throat> Peter agrees. Here's what he says. 2 Peter 1. You know these verses. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, Okay, uh, that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness, brotherly faith. You see these, these character qualities. This is what God works in us, right? Listen to what he says, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities, listen, is so nearsighted that he is blind, what? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
So if this kind of character quality that God wants to work in you and intends to work in you is not happening, this is not all on this is not on God. This is you've forgotten who you are in Christ. It's an identity crisis. We forget who we are and we'll feel hopeless to change and we won't grow in Christ likeness. So preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of your identity in Christ. And that's what I want to look at this afternoon. Uh, We're going to focus our attention on Colossians 3, uh, the first 17 verses. So if you want to turn there, you can. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, just verses 1 through 4 for now. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this, this whole passage is way too loaded to deal with it in all its glory, but there's, there's three things I want to pull out mainly from this. Number one... Uh, I want to talk about knowing your identity. I want to talk about embracing your identity and then living your identity. So the first thing to do is know your identity. This is so important. Now, I'm going to spend the majority of our time on this point, point number two, Um, and then we'll get into some practical things at the end. Knowing who you are in Christ sets a critical foundation for your Christian life, and it shapes how you view yourself It shapes how you view God and how you will live your life. And if you don't have a solid understanding of who you are in Christ, the devil will be very happy to for you. He will define your identity for you. And what will he say to you? He will convince you that you are a hopeless sinner, that you're a loser that you're a powerless failure, that you're a make-believer, whatever. He'll whisper those little things in your ear, and he will identify you for you. A, on your outline, in Christ, you are not the same you. You need to remind your counselee, you need to remind yourself that you are not the same you that you were before your conversion. A whole set of incredibly significant things happened to you when you were born again. Listen, your conversion was not simply a decision to follow Jesus. We get so caught into that decision language that we we completely have no clue the supernatural, mysterious, unbelievable things that God is doing in your life in a true conversion. It's not like a decision you just decided, I'm going to follow the Cavaliers. You know, I mean, that's, that's a good idea these days to follow the Cavaliers. But a whole set of, of life-altering supernatural things happened to you in your conversion by the love and grace and power of God. I'm just going to run through these. They're on your thing. If you took a handout, you don't have to write all these down. Go through quick. You were born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God. God replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. You have a heart that is now sensitive to the Spirit, a heart of faith to believe, a heart that can obey and glorify God that you didn't have before. Your sins were forgiven. They were thrown into the deepest part of the sea, past, present, and future. The wrath of God was turned away, and the wrath of God was absorbed by Christ on the cross. You were spiritually dead, You were dead in your sins, but now you are spiritually alive because of Christ. You were spiritually blind, but now you can see. You have a whole idea now of what God is up to in this universe. It's unbelievable now. The insight you have, the spiritual insight, your eyes have been opened. You were adopted into the family of God. You are now a child of God. You became a citizen of heaven. 
the righteousness of Christ was credited to you, and you, God now sees you as righteous as Jesus Christ. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who has taken up residence in you to give you power, to give you understanding, to sanctify you. You've been delivered from the dominion and rule of sin by the power of God. Your place in heaven was secured and is being kept for you by the power of God. You have an understanding of Scripture that you never could have had before, that was impossible before your conversion. You have a new power over sin that you never had before. John MacArthur put it this way. We receive a new heart, a new spirit, a new song, and a new name. We were called a new creation, a new creature, and a new self. Now, I mean, this is just a partial list. You you could probably add to this list as well from what you know of Scripture. Your conversion was not just a decision. You are a new you by the power and grace of God. And we know as counselors how important it is to give hope to a counselee, right? This is an important part of giving hope to a counselee because most often they think, I'm stuck in something and I don't know how to change. I don't know if I even can change. You need to remind them of now who they are in Christ. So let's look at at how the Apostle Paul describes our new identity in Christ. Look at B, Colossians chapter 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3. Then in verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, you've died and you've been raised with Christ. Now, he says, if you have been raised, it doesn't mean that there's any, any doubt for the believer. The sense here is, since you have been raised with Christ. You've died and you've been raised with Christ. Now, what does he mean? When you came to faith in Christ, when he saved your soul, a powerful, supernatural union took place. You were united to Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. You were united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Devoted to God. Excellent book. If you've not gotten it, I'd recommend it. He wrote about the importance of understanding your union in Christ. Here's what he said. All biblical truths are important and relevant, and some have the potential to change in a fundamental way how we live the Christian life. And this is one of them. Here's what he says. The point to grasp is this. Believers are so united to Christ that all he is and has done for us becomes our possession too. When Christ died upon the cross, in some sense we died with him. When he rose from the grave, we also rose with him. Because we are united to him, everything he has done on our behalf is so embodied in him that when we believe into Christ, all that is his becomes ours. When we get Christ by faith, we get everything that is in him to pardon, liberate, and transform our lives. All the resources that God deployed in his son, in his death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly reign, we now inherit. If this is true, then every resource stored up for us in Jesus Christ is now available to us through faith to enable us to live for his glory. In the death of Christ, you died. In the burial of Christ, you were buried. In the you were raised to a new life. Look how the Apostle Paul wrote it in Romans 6. If you want to turn to Romans 6. This whole idea of our union with Christ is really deep. Um, and, it's, and it's far larger than, than I can deal with in our short time together. Romans 6 is... If you've studied this chapter, it's powerful what's in this chapter. 
But we're going to look at some basic things. First three verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, um, probably a lot of us automatically, when we hear the word baptized, we think about water, right? Okay, well, this is not really, water baptism is not in view in this passage. This is a, water baptism is a picture, it's a symbol of what has happened spiritually. Um, Baptism is when we are, um, it's, it's a picture of the, what, has, what has happened in our union with Christ. It didn't, the baptism itself, the water baptism does not create that union. That is a spirit-generated, spirit-wrought work in our life. The spirit baptizes us into Christ's death. One of the, the main definitions of, of baptize is immerse, right? You've known this. We are permanently immersed into Jesus immersed or united with him in his death. That's what this is talking about. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And right, there's the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in our union with Christ, we're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are so united with Christ in our salvation, it's as though it's happened to us. So what are the implications? What are the implications of that gospel now that we've been saved by grace? Well, there's a lot of implications. (coughs) Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So he uses this phrase, the old self. Now, when he's talking about your old self, he's not talking about you, you know, 20 years ago when you (laughs) sinned, you know, like, uh, like you did when you were, you know, before Christ. He's talking about your old self is all of who you were when you were united to Adam. (coughs) Pardon me. And enslaved to sin. When you were born, you were born in Adam. You were born a sinner. Okay? And so your old self is all that was wrapped up in being united to Adam in your enslavement to sin, your sin. And your old self was crucified, says this passage, in the crucifixion of Jesus. <coughs> Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've been resurrected with Christ. And the effect of that was that we were no longer under the domain and under the reign of sin like we once were. We are no longer enslaved to sin like we once were. (coughs) Pardon me. We've been set free from the power of sin. He says the body of sin was brought to nothing. Sin has been rendered powerless over us. Its authority over us has been disabled and destroyed. And that is so important for us to understand. Probably half of you don't even believe it. It's a hard thing to grasp because we feel the pull and the draw of sin, don't we? Mm -hmm. Martin Lloyd-Jones rendered the verse like this. Do not go on living as if you were still that old man because that old man has died. Do not go on living as if he was still there. Look at verse 8 in Romans 6. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves 
dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you're a new you. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Now, when he says that, he's saying, think carefully about this. Reckon it to be true, because it is true. Sin's power over you has been broken. You've been set free from sin's dominion and rule over you. It doesn't have the absolute death grip on you that it did before you were in Christ. You are alive to God now in some amazing new ways. Believe it. Reckon it to be true. Because it is true. Before you had faith in Christ, you were powerless over the influence and pull over sin. You were powerless over it. You are no longer powerless over it. We're no longer slaves to sin. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, does that mean that we'll never sin again? We all know, no, that's not true, no. We will. We'll we'll be sinning until we see Christ. John MacArthur said, the Christian is a new, redeemed, holy creation incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. So we have this pull and this draw, yet we're new creations. It's, a, it's a, this kind of a middle time almost. Because we've been freed from sin doesn't mean we're sinless. We'll continue to feel that pull and that draw of sin's influence. But it no longer has the power over us that it did before. And that's great news. That's important news. It's a supernatural reality because of the gospel and our salvation in Christ. Now, but your counselee is going to say, I don't feel like it's true. It just doesn't feel like that. I still feel like I'm stuck and I can't get out. It's not uncommon. I bet we all feel like that at times. We're, we're at war with the flesh. The flesh is constantly striving with the spirit. That's just the reality. Now, a few things need to be said about that. Number one, this truth, this is a truth that must be embraced by faith. Okay? It's hard truth. This is hard stuff, and it's deep. Our feelings are notoriously unreliable and fickle. Our feelings need to be informed. Our feelings need to be sanctified like the rest of us. If God says it's true, it is true. And it's true for you as a believer. We are saved by faith and we live by faith. This is a faith issue. Jerry Bridges said, having exercised faith to believe in Christ... We must also exercise faith to draw upon the life and nourishment that comes to us from Christ through our living union with him. Second thing, our faith must lead to action. Even though you are no longer enslaved because of your... You're in Christ. You are no longer enslaved. As a practical matter, you can feel enslaved if you continue to give in to your temptations like you always did. The temptation may not go away completely. It'll fade over time. But if you continue to fall into the same pattern, temptation, fall into sin. Temptation, fall into sin. And just automatically give in to it. You are making yourself a slave to sin. Do you see what I'm saying? You're submitting yourself to slavery. (coughs) Paul said in Romans 6.16, we're still in 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So if you have habituated yourselves to always give in to the draw of temptation, 
to sin in a particular area, you are making yourself a slave to it. You're doing it to yourself. So what do we do instead? Verse 19. For just as you once were, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, you presented yourself, your members, your body, your thoughts, your actions, to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So you have this habit. You habituated yourself. The temptation comes, I fall into it. Habituate yourself now. The temptation comes, I do what's right. You have the power in Christ to do this. It's that whole put off, put on dynamic that Heath was talking about. So when you feel the draw into sin, stop and pray, oh God, help me right now. Thank you that I have the power over this, that I am no longer a slave. Remind yourself of the gospel. I am no longer a slave to this. Help me to do what's right. And then, in the power of the Spirit, submit yourself to obedience to Christ, and God will give you the grace at that moment to do what's right. So, our faith must lead to action. The third thing, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to know and remind ourselves of what's true of us because of the gospel and sink it deep into our souls. Right? So, Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. You guys, through 24, you know this passage. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Put on the new self, right? But there's a verse in the middle. It says... Don't forget this verse. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. We don't just put off an action, put on an action. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What does that mean? It means to be changed by the truth of the gospel. Remind yourself. Remember in uh, Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You renew your mind with the truth, including what's true of you now that you are united to Christ. I love this quote by Paul Tripp. He says this all the time. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Isn't that true? You're talking to yourself all the time. You're preaching some kind of gospel to yourself all the time. And what are you telling? What are you preaching to yourself? And this is one of the things that my, my counselee that I've, I talked about before was struggling with. He didn't think he had control over his thoughts. You do have control over your thoughts. You must control your thoughts. The question is, what are you preaching to yourself? What is your self-talk like? Do you tell yourself that you're powerless over your sin? Do you meditate on defeat and discouragement? Or do you preach the truth to yourself? Um, Paul Tripp was interviewed recently by David Mathis. I don't know if you saw it. It came up in my Facebook feed uh, just like last week. Here's what he said. He said, it's first about meditation. We need to be more conscious of what has captured our meditation. You know what I'm saying? What we think about, what we chew on, what we mull over. Is my meditation captured by the difficulties of life? And that's what occupies my mind in all the moments when my mind isn't on a task? Or is my meditation formed by the gospel of the, the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, if you, if, let's see, back up, Rome, go to Romans 4. I think it's kind of interesting. If we look at Abraham for a moment. You remember the story of Abraham? <clears throat> God promised him that his offspring, you know, would, would flourish, you know, all the promises to Abraham for his offspring. Now, God promised Abraham and Sarah an offspring around how old were they at the time? 
around 100 years old, okay? So Abraham and Sarah are thinking, okay, well, we're well past childbearing years, and yet here's this promise that our offspring will have all these promises. So here's an impossible situation. So Abraham could have been thinking the whole time, this is a dumb this is, you know, this, nothing, you know, whatever, what he's thinking, you know? It's impossible. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Okay? Um, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Who gives the God who gives life to the dead? and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, again, Abraham could have just looked at the situation and said, can't be done, it's not possible, we're well beyond all these natural things. Instead, he thought about the God that calls into existence the things that do not exist, gives life to the dead. This is the God that I serve. This is the God who promised this. Right? So his self-talk, his, his meditation needed to be adjusted to who God is, the one who promised this. So Paul Tripp goes on to say, if I don't do that, if my meditation is on the little, medium-sized, and big difficulties of life, they tend to loom larger. And they begin to form another gospel that I preach to myself, a gospel of difficulty, of aloneness, of envy, of questions of the faithfulness of God, of the unfairness of life, of the power and pull of the flesh, etc. Of all those things that are very, very different from the way God presents himself in the scripture and what he says I am as a child, as his child. So what we think about matters. Sinclair Ferguson gave a very interesting insight about slavery. He said, I remembered that I had read years earlier that when slaves in the South were emancipated, some of them were incapable of taking it in. Externally, they were free, but internally, the marks, the habits, the dispositions, and mentality produced by years and generations of enslavement remained. They were free men, but they were never able to enjoy that freedom. Inside, they were still slaves. They didn't believe it. We need to be convinced that we're no longer slaves of sin. If you are not convinced that you have been liberated from slavery you will continue to live like a slave. So don't forget who you are now. Your counselee must never forget who they are now in Christ. And this is key. What did James say? Don't be like the one who looks at himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Right? Now, we've, um, we've grown very fearful of identity theft in our connected culture. We, um, we do our banking online. You know, we buy things online. We search for all manner of things online. So much of you is captured in the cloud. And we get nervous about that, right? We're vulnerable to identity theft. And not long ago, we learned that uh, information from 500 million Yahoo users was hacked. Identities stolen. But we need to remember that there's someone else who wants to steal your identity, and that is the devil. 
He wants to utterly defeat you. How does he do that? He does it by deceiving you into believing that you are no different than the average non-believer. That you have no power over sin. That there is no hope for you. That you are stuck in your sinful habits. He'll be very glad to, to remind you of who you are before you were in Christ. If he can convince you that you're still the same old sinner that you were before, if he can convince you you have no power over your desires, your he can absolutely derail you. So don't listen to the devil's lies. Remind your counselee. Here's how Paul said it in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Here's how he said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians, or 2 Corinthians 5.17. You guys know this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You and I are living in a, in a whole new spiritual reality now. Jerry Bridges said it this way. As a result of being in Christ, we are given a new heart, a new spirit, a new identity, and a new relationship. He has radically changed our hearts, turning hearts of constant rebellion and disobedience to hearts fully capable of loving obedience. Once we are in Christ, we are able to say no to sin. And that is an ability we simply did not have prior to our conversion because we were in Adam. Now, there's something I find really interesting in all of Paul's writings. You ever noticed that the Apostle Paul never calls you a Christian? Do you know the phrase he uses over 160 times in his letters? You are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Jesus said in John 14, Because I live... You also will live. I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. It's powerful. It's hard to get your head around, but it is true. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your new identity as a new creation is wrapped up in Christ. So you need to remind yourself of that. Preach the gospel to yourself. And when you do that, you're not just trying to make yourself feel better with some happy talk, happy self-talk. This is not what we're talking about. This is preaching the truth to yourself. Now, John Owen said there is really only two problems pastors face in ministry. He said this in the treatise on the dominion of sin and grace. Here's the first problem. Persuading those who are under the dominion of sin that they are under the dominion of sin. That's the task of evangelism. Okay? Second problem is persuading those who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they are no longer under the dominion of sin because they are Christ's. And once you know your identity you need to embrace your identity. We're back in Colossians chapter 3. We'll move along faster now. Not only believe that it is true of you, embrace it. Let it make a real difference in the way that you think and what you pursue in your life. You are a new you, and because you're a new you, it changes things. Look again at Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He uses the words seek and seek, or continuous action words. It means 
Seek and keep on seeking. Set and keep on setting. Your mind's on things above. It means that what you think about, your loves, what you value, what you desire, what you delight in, are things above, heavenly things. What drives you, what motivates you, what energizes you in your life are heavenly things, not earthly things. So who you are at your core determines your loves and desires. And what used to motivate you was everything that was horizontal, right? Mm -hmm. Things, cares of this world, things on earth. But the core, at the core of who you are, your inner identity is now hidden with Christ in God. You're a new creation, a citizen of of a heavenly kingdom, and Jesus is king. So how should that impact what energizes and motivates me? If I embrace that, what difference should it make? I mean, I'm in a real world. My inner drives and my purposes have changed. I look at things differently. I look at things through spiritual gospel lenses. What I seek now is first and foremost the glory of God, number one. God created you for his glory. I want God to be honored and glorified in my life. I want him to be seen in me. So when I have a decision to make... I ask myself if the decision will honor and glorify God or will it just feed my flesh and my ego and my appetites. And when I'm having a conversation with my wife and there's a a potential for it to start getting heated, which I know never happens, you know, (laughs) truly to a Christian. But what drives me now? What's, What's going through my head? If I want to seek the things that are above, if I want God to be honored and glorified... I want to be an example of love and grace and patience. Why? Because Jesus was full of love and grace and patience. He demonstrated that at the cross. It's a gospel-driven behavior. When I'm sitting at my computer at my desk and no one's around and some kind of thing pops up on your screen, some ad, some kind of thing on the side, whatever, and I'm tempted to click over there and indulge my flesh I think about something else now that I'm ruled by Christ I want to honor Christ I want to honor my wife and my family and click away on something else that's safe get away from such a thing before the temptation gets a hold of me and turns to sin why? because I set my mind on glorifying God that's who I am now in Christ I want to honor Christ more than I want to gratify my lusts and my appetites. I let my identity in Christ be the ultimate driving factor of my motives and my behaviors. And when I'm experiencing suffering or pressure or stress, and it feels overwhelming at times, what do I do? I set my mind on the things above. What's happening? This is tough. But you know what? One day, behind me, my secure in Christ. He is guarding inheritance, power of God. And one day, this is all going to be no more mourning, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. And I let that encourage me. That's gospel reality. Seek the things above, says Paul. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And because I'm a new creation, I set the compass of my life direction on Christ. His purposes, his glory, his priorities, his his ends. Number three, Paul gets real specific. Look at verse 17, Colossians 3.17. Paul gives us kind of a a global summarizing sentence that covers the whole thing. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the first point there is our life is first centered on Jesus. He means that everything we do, it 
we, we want to do everything we do in a way that's consistent with who Jesus is, what he wants. It means to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves with Christ, so that when people see us, in a sense, they see Jesus because we're relating to people in a Christ-like way. And we have the power to do that on an increasing basis because of our union with Christ. It's gospel truth that empowers and enables sanctification and godliness. So we live our lives centered on Jesus. Second thing we see is that we should be growing in godliness. Even though we're new creations in Christ, even though my life is hidden with Christ in God, and I know that, I still struggle with areas of sin, with fleshly indulgence at times. We still struggle with it. Our sinful habits, though, are totally inconsistent with who you are in Christ. So God calls us to put them away, to get rid of them. Look at the force in in verse 5. Because you've died and been raised with Christ, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Don't toy with sin and temptation. Don't entertain it. Don't be casual and sneaky about what dishonors God. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. You used to live that way. You used to be a slave to sin. You couldn't help it. That shouldn't be true of you now. Put sin to death. Mortify it. Kill it. Starve it. Make no provision for it. Put them all away, verse 8, in the power of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And then we see the the, the alternative. We don't just stop stuff. He says, put on them. Instead of the sin you used to indulge in as a believer, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. You see what's following. We don't just stop sinning. We replace sin with righteousness. Put on what is consistent with your new identity. So as you live in the new you, you'll be growing in godliness. Verse 14, be led by love. Verse 14, and above all these things, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the grandest of all virtues. It's the virtue that governs and covers all other virtues. Paul said, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And the greatest demonstration of love was where? On the cross. Jesus laid his life down for sinners, his enemies. Why? I don't know. But because of love. Love is at the heart of the gospel. Then in verse 15, ruled by peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Where does the peace of Christ come from? Colossians 1 says he, he was making peace by the blood of the cross. We have peace with Christ because of the blood of the cross. The enmity, the hostility that existed between us God, because of our sin, was taken away by the cross, and now we have peace with him. We've been reconciled with God. The conflict with God is over. Praise God. Amen. It's a peace that can only come through Christ. And let that peace rule in your hearts. Let it be the umpire of your life. Let it motivate us to have peace and unity and reconciliation with others in the body of Christ. That's gospel truth. It should rule and guide your life. And then the last thing is, be saturated by Scripture. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of Christ is scripture, all of scripture. Let it dwell in you. 
It means that it should live in you. It should be at home in you. It should take up residence in you. And don't just let it reside there a little. He said, let it dwell in you richly, abundantly. Let it saturate you so that it changes you and guides you. You know, you think of a sponge that's just absolutely saturated and dripping. You just pick it out of the, out of the bucket. It's just, and when you, where, what you poke it, you know, what's going to come out of that is what it's saturated with. Mm-hmm. So when you're poked, what comes out of you? Mm-hmm. Read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it. And when your friend needs a word of counsel, counsel the word of God will come out. When your soul is weary, the Spirit will remind you of Scripture and bring comfort and peace. When you're tempted, the Spirit will bring to mind truth to convict and exhort. The new you wants that spiritual food. The new you thirsts for the Word. The psalmist said, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. So if you're a child of God by faith in Christ, you are a new creation in Christ. Your counselee is a new creation in Christ. You are not the same you you were before you met Christ. (coughs) Miraculous things happen in your life, and you are no longer bound and ruled by the dominion of sin. You are no longer that person. So you need to preach that to yourself. Your counselee needs to be reminded of that so that they have hope. You know, my counselee, I needed to work with him a lot on this. He's been a Christian a long time. He needs to remember this, that change is possible because of who he is in Christ and because who God is in his life now. And that change is taking place. It's very encouraging. It's one of the the blessings of working with others with the word of Scripture. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, some of these scriptures, yeah, you need to, I gave them a whole, I printed out about two pages of these kinds of truths. and said, you need to keep this, stick it in your Bible, review these, and, you, and um, give them a couple to memorize as well. Key ones that he, that, you know, really are striking to him. Um, and he needs to have, he, I also assigned him to come up with a strategy so that when he's tempted change, what are you going to think about? What gospel truth are you going to think about? When you're tempted to murder because of, in your mind, because of what they did to you, what strategy going to be an alternative? You know what I also, I told him, here's what I said, Bill, I said, Bill, he, he just feels like, he, he told me, I don't understand it how some of these people can be so gracious all the time. And I said, you know what, Steve? That's, that's the power of the gospel to change a life. And I said, you know what? You need to have a vision of yourself that you would be known as gracious Bill. You need to have that in your head. One day, God is going to so work in me that I'm going to be known as gracious Bill. And that's not like pie in the sky, make yourself feel better. This is possible because of who he is in Christ. So he needed to have a strategy. What am I going to think about when I'm tempted? You know what I mean? Take your thoughts captive. He he needed to memorize that verse. And then also, okay, so what are you going to do now? The temptation came. What am I going to do now? If there's a break in the wall around the city and somebody could come over that wall and steal stuff, you post a guard where the wall is weak. Right? So I know what my temptations are. The devil knows where the temptations are. And when that temptation comes, what am I going to do? What am I going to think about? So much depends on what you decide to think about. So those are the kinds of things I gave him to do. Yeah. Uh, what do you do? How do you start if your counseling is not a believer? Do you share the gospel? Absolutely. That's, that's session number one. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Um, 
or two, depends on where you got, you know, you get a lot of information a lot of times in your first session. So you need to get to that fast. Yeah. That's always the first thing. It's always evangelism first. Any other questions? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you're in the business of changing lives. Thank you that we have the power in Christ to be different. God, deliver us from our defeated thoughts. Help us to meditate on what's true. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves when we're feeling weak, when we're feeling powerless and hopeless. Thank you, God, that one day all this is going to be behind us and we're going to be in heaven with you. What a glorious day that's going to be. In the meantime, Lord, give us grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.